Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. I am so excited today to be speaking with the globe-trotting mezzo-soprano Michelle DeYoung. One of the most exciting artists of her generation, Michelle frequently appears with the world's top orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic, the Boston Symphony, the Chicago Symphony, the Cleveland Orchestra, the San Francisco Symphony, 
Los Angeles Philharmonic, Vienna Philharmonic, BBC Symphony Orchestra, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, the San Paolo Symphony, and the Concertgebouw Orchestra. She has also appeared in the top music festivals around the world, including Ravinia, Tanglewood, Aspen, Salzburg, and Lucerne. She's worked with the most legendary conductors in classical music, including Daniel Berenboim, Pierre Boulez, Sir Colin Davis, Gustavo Dudamel, Bernard Heitink, Seiji Ozawa, Esapekka Salonen, Maris Janssens, and many, many more. Michelle has performed in the world's great houses and works across the operatic spectrum from Wagner and Strauss to Bartok and Berlioz, and also regularly presents recitals across the world. Her recordings of Mahler's Third Symphony and Kinder Totenlieder with the San Francisco Symphony and Berlioz's Trojans with the London Symphony both received the Grammy for Best Classical Album and Best Opera Recording. While not touring the globe and during the pandemic, Michelle can be found in Broomfield, Colorado, and I'm very honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. To start out, I I was just wondering if you can talk about how you as a singer or any singer approaches a role, whether it be new or something you've done previously. Can you talk about the process? Well, when you first get offered a role, um, it's important to to look it over. I always look through the score to make sure the role is, you know, for me, singable. And then I usually listen to a recording of it because you can't always see everything just from looking at the score. And then usually I, I pick it because, I, you know, if it's interesting to me, I will pick it. And then go through it and translate the whole thing if I don't speak the language and work on the pronunciation. And then I, because I'm just a musician at heart, I can't wait to get to the music. So I always go straight to, you know, playing my part and, and starting to sing it. And, but then it's a mixture of while I'm working on learning how to sing it and learning the role, also figuring out what I'm saying and what that means and how I develop that character. And it kind of all comes together. And um, because I'm a, a quite a, fast musician. I can, I learn music very fast. I can't memorize it through learning it. Um, so I usually have to take some time just to, uh, work on the memory of it. So can you talk about the process of memorization, assuming that you are essentially memorizing almost everything you perform? I do try to, yeah, I really like to be memorized and that will depend. I find, for instance, if my colleagues are going to do a concert with music, then I'll use music just because I think it it sort of looks nicer for the audience and I think it's more supportive to my colleague. I know I'm uh, I'm in the minority by doing that, but that's how I am. But I do like to not use music because I am able to sort of get more into it and into I can focus more on how my body is reacting, how my voice is reacting. So how do I do that? It depends. Like I'm working on a piece by Beethoven right now called Andifana Geliebte. And I don't know why, but I have... It's really hard to memorize. And one of the problems is it's it's not difficult for me to sing. So I tend to work on other things in the recital more than that. I just have to go over it and over and over it. I have to write it out both in German and English and just really sit down with it and go over it. And then I'll listen to a recording of it of a different person every time so I don't get into someone's habits. And then I'll go and study it more and then I'll sing it. And then it's just one after the other. It's really the only way to do it. But, you know, it depends. Last year I sang my first Jezi uh, Baba with Paris Opera from Rizalka, and I have never sung in Czech. And I learned the opera, someone had canceled, so I learned it in two weeks. And that is just, you know, that's all I did. 
I, you know, had coffee and ate, walked my dog and studied. <laughs> Did you sleep? There was not much sleep. It, the sleep was, you know, I was so just, I love it. I love that kind of stress. And um, I really do enjoy that. But it's also very stressful. You can't do it for very long. I had a similar experience during one of my degrees. I was asked to learn to prepare as the assistant, Bizet's Carmen. Oh. And I had to rehearse a, a Zitz probe or something. And I was, you know, doing a couple other jobs in music and I hadn't looked at it yet. And then I found out I had to uh, conduct it the next day. Oh my goodness. And that's a long opera. So I stayed up all night learning it. It keeps going. Well, when you're trying to learn it in one night, it keeps going. Um, I stayed up trying to learn it and trying to, you know, I'm not like, I took four years of French in high school, but I was, you know, do not speak French. Yeah. And yeah, I, I got through it, but I don't think I got all the right tempi. And I, I was relying on the singers and it was a college oh. production. So I was kind of, well, the singers will carry me. And and no, like the conductor has to give the tempos very clearly. So- um, Oh my goodness. It wasn't Czech at least, but I can definitely- feel you on that one. That's exciting though, isn't it? I bet afterwards you were very tired. I was very tired and very embarrassed yeah. and just wanted to go into a, that was probably one of the, yeah, it's, it's lessons like that, that make you, you know, always, always learn your scores. Oh yeah. Right. And sometimes it's just not possible, but, but 99.9% .9 of the time there's no excuse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it, if you know, it's coming up, you have to, you have to know it. So I'm curious, why did you choose Andi Ferna Galipta? Are you performing that pretty soon? Or? I am. I'm actually, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to Spain for a month in May and I'm doing five or six recitals, possibly six and a recording. So I, I can't wait. It's going to be for audiences and um, it's all getting set up as we speak. And we are starting the concert with Antifana Galipta. I love the piece. I've never sung it before. I've always wanted to. And it's so interesting, in my opinion, because the rep I usually sing is such big, you know, massive stuff. And it's so simplistic yet complicated all at the same time. And I love I love the idea of starting the recital with it. So that will be the, the first piece of the recital. Can you talk about music that you've possibly discovered in the past year? And you do a lot of things like Bluebeard's Castle or uh, Wagner, Berlioz, some Verdi that you're incredibly well known for and you're basically the best on the planet at doing. Oh, thank you. What is your process for discovering new music and identifying new pieces either that have been composed like now or just pieces you haven't done before? Well, I have been incredibly fortunate because I have worked with some extraordinary, like your list said, extraordinary conductors. And um, Pierre Boulez really loved me. I was so, I loved him, but I was so um, blessed by that because he would come up with these ideas and want me to learn things. And I'd be like, I don't know. And I would do it just because, you know, like I did my, my uh, debut at Bayreuth with Kundry from Parsifal, which I had never sung before. I didn't even know if I could sing it. And he wanted me, so I did it. It's amazing. But it just depends. Like, for instance, one of the things I did during this time off, should we say, this pandemic, I did a recording of Winterreise. And I recorded it here in my living room, and my pianist recorded it in Chicago. And then my cousin in California put them together with video. 
And we put the whole thing on YouTube, the entire cycle. So it was so cool. We did like a song every two days or so. And I'd never sung them before. So I learned them and did them for this. And that's incredible. That I, I now want to do it in recital because I love it so much. So there's there's like that. It's usually someone will come up with an idea. I heard this piece. It would be great for you. And I'll have a look at it. And then during the past year or so, have you discovered any non-classical artists or music? I guess, what is your soul food when it comes to music that is not part of your profession? <laughs> it's funny because it's such a, I mean, music is, my, my whole life is just consumed with it, especially now. Um, and so when I'm listening to music, it's usually something that has to do with something I'm doing, like the concert I'm doing with you. You know, I happen to love Bjork. I mean, I have, you know, four of her albums on my iTunes because I love her and I have for years. So for me, that's not really, you know, to work on that is really fun. But I love Nina Simone. <laughs> like you can't believe I love Nina Simone. So um, I, I like things if they're, I love voices. So if the, if the voice is really good, then I'm going to love listening to it. I'm not a huge country Western um, lover, mostly because I don't like the twang in the voice. So there are certain ones that I really like. It just depends on my mood. I love live music. So I love going to blues clubs and jazz clubs. But on the other hand, I love Shostakovich. I, you know, I love the, the symphonies. I know his operas, but I have never been in any of them. But when I listen, it's, it's to his symphonies. I think of those as quite, you know, because it's like, we're thinking of programming and getting out of this pandemic. It's like, okay, Maybe we won't do like any Barbara Adagio for strings or Shostakovich fifth or Tchaikovsky Patatique. You know, it's kind of like we need to be uplifted. Can you maybe talk about the kind of emotions Shostakovich portrays for you? Well, it's just so overwhelming. It's so dramatic. And I, I feel, um, I mean, I like that, that kind of music. In some ways, Wagner is the same way where it's just, it's everything. It's not, I don't often listen to, Handle or I like Haydn, but I don't often listen to it, but I'll go and hear it. If I hear it in a concert, I love it. I'm very dramatic as a human being. So I really like dramatic music. Yeah. And I think of Wagner is something like, like most times you go to music, right? Wagner is something that seems to kind of just go to you, like, like the blob, you know, that eighties movie or something yeah. It just kind of encapsulates and eats everything in its presence. And I must say that I've never been privileged to really, I mean, except some overtures in concert, but yeah, I'm, I'm always in awe of, of you or, or conductors who who get the opportunity to bring this music to life. It's it's kind of just like something that we study our whole lives and we never yeah. get to bring to life. So that that must be an amazing experience to be living that all the time. Yes, it really is. So I like that. I like music like that. Um, I'm getting into Bruckner, which I never really was into before, but, and I tend to like my favorite is the sixth, which everyone's like, no, no, that's wow. not the one to like. Yeah. Well, that's the one I like. That is that is very unique. I've never heard that before. It's usually like the seventh, or the, the seventh, fourth, or the fourth, or the eighth, yeah, or the exactly. Ninth. No, I like the sixth. I'll listen to those and I'll go, yeah, they're nice, but I always go back to the sixth. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. I made a Bruckner playlist, and I think the sixth was like on the last yeah. symphony. <laughs> and, and that's interesting because you talked about how your dad used to play. Mahler symphonies when he was preparing his sermons. And I personally, it took me some time. 
I mean, my dad never liked Mahler or Bruckner or Schoenberg or Shostakovich, but it took me some time to come around to it. I, I must admit, I mean, you, and you became a professional singer in college, but even in college, I was hooked on the, the classical and the kind of early romantic people. It took me probably till my late 30s to come around and really have an appreciation. Mahler first and then Bruckner followed. Yeah. Can you talk about your relationship uh, with those composers in that regard? Well, I mean, I've sung Mahler my entire career, so I'm incredibly fortunate because I love it and I feel it on such a deep level. So I have sung everything a mezzo could possibly sing and have recorded most of it. It's, you know, really wonderful. But I think Bruckner, like I said, is more new. My dad used to listen to Bruckner too, and I didn't really get into it until I would say the last 10 years, really. But I also happen to be an enormous Beethoven fan. So, you know, I love the symphonies. I love them. I think they're just brilliant. I think seven is one of the greatest things ever written. I love three too, but seven's my favorite. <laughs> Again, I always pick the one, you know, everyone likes five. I like seven. I, I guess I like music that makes me feel a certain way. And these, this makes me feel, and also musicians that create music that make me feel a certain way. There's a trend right now to go very fast with tempos and to not have a lot of feeling with the music. That does nothing for me. It, I feel nothing with that. I want to feel. That's what. That's my escape, you know? I, I love that. And uh, so I, I can tend to be annoying, I think, to some conductors, <laughs> but I... Um, that that is what I like, I, and I feel it even the Beethoven and I like with even Handel. If you, I want Handel to be done passionately. I don't. It doesn't really touch me if it's just you know without emotion. You know, the amazing uh, Krista Ludwig passed away uh, recently. And uh, I think just a few weeks before, a video surfaced of her and Bernstein. Yeah. Kind of. And, you know, there's a there's a squabble with Bernstein with a lot of singers uh, that you can find on video. But I'm curious, what what did you think of that? If, and if you if you were able to see it? I saw that a long, long time ago. I've seen that whole video. So it's funny because it's an, a section of Das Lied von der Erde and she's saying, I can't do it that fast. I, you know, it's, it's too fast. I can't sing it that fast. And he said, no one can hear you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Which being someone that has sung that piece a lot, in fact, in this pandemic, a lot, it's true. It's so low for the mezzo and the orchestra is so loud that it's very rare that you can be heard anyway. But the, I also, 
have the opposite feeling of her. I like to do that whole phrase without a breath. Mm. So I like it faster. Mm. And I think it, sh- it, it shows the chaos of the horse race. I don't like it if it's slow. So that is one section that I um, disagreed with her. Usually she's faster than I am. But I loved how she stood up for herself. And that is not always easy for a woman to do with a male conductor. Often they're not respected, quite frankly. And just speaking of, of Bernstein, I guess since you're working with the, the world's top orchestras and conductors and, and many different styles and musical inclinations. To quote Bernstein in a speech he gave before a concert in regards to Glenn Gould, uh, who's the boss, the soloist or the conductor? And what was his answer? (laughs) That was before a performance of the D minor Brahms, the first piano concerto, where Bernstein came out because he so disagreed with the slow interpretation of Glenn Gould he came out before the performance and disavowed himself of the performance. Oh, that's terrible. And say, and even told the audience, you know, why not have an assistant conductor conduct it? And he said, because Mr. Gould is such an esteemed and highly regarded established artist um, that he felt obligated to present the piano concerto in its current form. I mean, obviously, you know, nobody other than Bernstein would ever even attempt something like that's that. That's incredibly tacky. Of course it is. And you can listen to the recording. I have to say, I think that's incredibly t- Because that makes the whole audience nervous. And the thing is, they're there to enjoy the music. They're there to enjoy everything. And I have to say, if you do a recital with a pianist or if you sing with a conductor, the rehearsal is the time to figure out how to discuss it, to say, I, I need it this way. I, I can do that. I don't care for it, but I can do it. And usually that's what it ends up being for a singer is I see what you want, but I can't actually sing it that fast. So, you know, maybe you should get Joyce DiDonato because she sings Rossini, but that has to be done in a rehearsal. By the time you come to performance, you have to let the singer do it because you don't know what's happening. The singer could have just like inhaled spit and can't sing right then. You know what I mean? You just don't know. Or they could be losing their voice and they want to go faster because that's what happens in live performance. So you have to have some kind of respect for the instrument of the voice, I think. Because we're not like, you know, I've played many instruments. It's not the same when you play an instrument. When you're a singer, it's right then, right there. It's not going to be exactly the same as last time. Can you talk about how playing different instruments has influenced your singing? I think it's made me a more well-rounded musician. I've played piano all my life. And so if I get a singer that wants to come and have lessons with me um, and they're a bad musician, I'll tell them to take piano lessons because I think it's imperative that a singer be a good musician. I think that's probably, I've always been just, that's my thing. I love learning instruments. I love uh, being a musician. I love music. Uh, It's, you know, it, the, the instrument I, I consider like the biggest influence on me is the cello, which I've, I actually did start taking lessons, but um, I, it has not influenced my singing at all because I'm horrible. But um, it's the sound of the cello, the richness of the cello, I think, is most like my instrument and how I try to make music. Can you talk about the importance of taking voice lessons or as a instrumentalist or as a conductor? A lot of times I will experience, especially younger musicians who might play their instrument, and then you might ask them to sing something 
and you know like yeah well interestingly i have been told by from many major orchestras people in the string section that they're trying to play like i sing hmm. um you know the the rich tone and the the i guess the musicianship which is a huge compliment for a conductor i think it's imperative because especially if it's a conductor that's going to conduct singers because you have to understand what we need. You know, like for me, I have enormous lungs. So if I'm singing Wagner or something, it takes me a second to take a breath. I also can't pop high notes. I can sing them, but I can't pop. Don't make me pop a high C. It won't come out. So you just have to understand voices. You know, that's one thing about James Levine. James Levine understood the voice. He couldn't sing, but he understood the voice. And he was an extraordinary uh, singer's conductor for that reason. You talk about having a from C to shining C range. Can you talk about, you know, having those three octaves, what roles that allows you to take on that may not be possible for others? I don't ever sing a low C in public. I warm up to low C, but I never sing it in public uh, and never have been asked to. I think the lowest I've ever sung is E. But high C, you know, the fact that I have a high C, Bluebeard's Castle has a high C. And quite frankly, if someone sings it, they don't have a high C, it's disappointing. You know, it's... it. People wait for it. They wait for the fifth door where the singer sings his high C soaring over the incredibly loud orchestra. Um, and then a lot of stuff I do has high Bs in it, which is equally as hard or as high, really. It feels as high. I'm doing a, the love duet from Tristan, which has high Cs. Um, so it it lets me do a few things that that I would like to do that. You know, I am a mezzo, but I'm sort of a Zwischenfach. I sing a lot of soprano stuff as well because of my range. Could you talk about who your favorite operatic character is and why? And that doesn't necessarily have to be one of the characters you've portrayed. That is not easy. I love singing Zieglinda. I, I love that, which from Valkyrie. I love Judith in Bluebeard. She's so cool and she's so hard to sing and she's so complicated as a character. There's so many different sides. Would you say Bluebeard, Judith is the one you've sang the most out of all your characters? Yes, because I do it in concert so much. I've only done it staged three times, but I sing it in concert. I've sung it in concert all over the world. And what would you say about Bartok draws you? Because I, I personally love Bartok as well. You're going to be making your conducting debut on Bartok, which is, couldn't actually, that was one of the pieces that I did when I started conducting the Romanian folk. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the violin concerti, the concerto for orchestra, all this fantastic music of this composer who basically, you know, passed away in the 1940s not thinking that his music would really ever amount to much, was kind of considered maybe an ethnomusicologist or something, maybe one of the first. Um, can you talk about that draw for you into the world of Bartok? One thing I love about Bartok is, if you even just take Bluebeard, is the how many different styles are in this one-hour opera. It's so extraordinary. You have these moments that are so beautiful, you want to cry. And then you have these moments of, you know, just chaos and loud and soft. And I mean, it has so many different types of music within this one thing. And even, you know, like you say, the piece, the Romanian dances, in some ways, they're kind of like Handel, you know, there's somewhat, there's something very simplistic about him, but within it, they're not. And that's what I love. He, it's like, he puts his edge on all of these different types of music and it works together so beautifully. But he's also, as you know, if you talk about Bartok, I mean, about Bluebeard, he uses the language so incredibly well and the 
music that you're hearing, even if you don't know what it means, it being in Hungarian, you can hear what is happening because the music matches the words. So he was extraordinary with that. And he also wrote really beautiful for the voice. I mean, I still, I've sung it since I was, I don't know how old I was for the, the first time. But at the beginning of my career, I did it for the first time and have sung it throughout my career. And every time I sing it, I find it challenging and I try to find, get better at it and try to find new ways to do it because it is really, really hard to sing. It goes very low, very high, very dramatic, very, you have to do some floaty stuff, some, you know, and it's so fabulous. It's fabulous for the voice. Yeah. It's something I've wanted to conduct for a very long time. Do you, do you sing it in English or Hungarian or have you done it both? I've asked, been asked to do it in English, and I actually said no. I like it only in Hungarian. The Hungarian language suits the the music of Bartok. And then what are your thoughts kind of in general, and maybe it can vary between languages and composers, but about performing in the original language that the composer wrote for or performing in the language local to that uh, region? I always want to sing in the language that the composer wrote. Because I think that the music suits that. I have sung at ENO in in um, London. I did Aida, or I did Amneris in Aida there, and boy, it just it was really not easy to sing that in English. I'm so used to sing it in Italian, and I don't think I was terribly successful at doing that because it's it's just difficult. It's just difficult to sing, first of all, to sing in your own language because you, you don't necessarily speak so healthy. So then all of a sudden to try to sing in that language is difficult. Italian suits it, so I like singing in the language. talked about that you had taken ballet and German and kind of everything you possibly could to be a better singer. Uh, What is the most kind of surprising non-musical extracurricular activity that you engaged in that really you thought, wow, I had no idea this would impact me as an artist so profoundly? Well, the reason I took those is uh, I went to Cal State Northridge. And at that point, 
I didn't start singing until I was in college or think of going into singing. And when I did, I decided to sort of, instead of focus on graduating from college, I focused on doing what I needed to do for a singer. So I took classes in the university that I thought could help me, maybe. <laughs> yes, I took ballet. I was not successful. I th I'm sure there are women that are six foot one that are good at ballet. I was not one of them. So I kind of came up with it. I took languages and, you know, anything I could to that I thought would help. I do think movement is very important. One of the things that I learned, but not in college is like Alexander technique. I think yoga and Pilates are important. I am very, very big with my students on core strength. So I tell them they all have to do planks every day. I don't know if they do, but I tell them they're supposed to. Do you do a plank every morning? I do a plank every day. I li at least one. That's amazing. How long? I'm up to a minute and a half. That's tough. But I built up to it. I usually do two, but I, I do at least one. Did you see the guy that did the eight hour plank? Like it was like a year ago. Oh my, I did. I was like, oh my gosh, oh I can my. do a minute. That takes incredible well, perseverance and strength, incredible strength, but I also get bored. So you know, I end up stopping. I'm like, okay, let's do something else. <laughs> That's good. If you, the reason you're getting out of your plank is through boredom and not necessity. It's both. I could go longer probably, but it's a minute and a half is, is it for me, really. You talked about when you were younger, you didn't take time and now you take more time. Can you talk about how patience and mindfulness have manifested in your life as of lately? I think it's influencing my teaching. I don't, I sound like that's all I'm doing. I only have seven students and they're all private, but I am very big on sharing the information that you have to be your own teacher and you have to take the information that I'm giving you and you have to make it work, which takes a lot of patience and a lot of time. You can't just go and sing. That's not going to do it. That will not get you better. Um, and I do that with myself. I will work through things and I'll just, you know, take a phrase. And if it's not working, then I'll work on the phrase and tear it apart. I tape myself when I'm singing and then I force myself to listen. I don't force myself. I listen to everything. And I think that that is a really important thing. Now, as you had said, I'm doing my conducting debut. I have taken on learning conducting during this pandemic. And um, I've had a private teacher once a week and read books and you know, studied and practiced. And that in itself, it's, I'm also taking it more patiently, like, well, I have no hurry with this. And I mean, I do have a hurry as, as a, if I really want to do this professionally, but um, I just want to be good. So I know that if you really want to be successful at something, you just have to do the steps. You can't miss the steps. And for those of you who are unaware, Michelle DeYoung is making her conducting debut with the Boulder Symphony very soon. I'm sure it was a long work in progress, but can you talk about what inspired you to make the move or get bitten by the conducting bug, as they say? I love the music so much. My favorite thing is to go to symphony concerts, not opera. <laughs> so that is my thing. And all of a sudden I was... Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. You know what happened? It was Essa Pekka Solonen's fault because I was singing with him with the Chicago Symphony and he um, curated a concert with the chamber orchestra and he wanted me to sing Ravel Malame songs. So I get to the rehearsal and he's not there. And I was like, where's Essa Pekka? And they're like, he's not coming. And I was like, wow, who's conducting? 
And they said, no one, we're just doing it. And I was like, and they're really tricky. I don't know if you've done them, but I'd never sung them before. And they're tricky. They're like, you have to count and, you know, while you're singing. And um, anyway, so I conducted myself. I was just like, you know, conducting myself through it. So we finished the rehearsal. It goes fine. And the first violinist says, you know, you're going to have to conduct the concert concert now. And I went, no, no, no. So that's how it started. Um, although that was just terrifying. So as a Pekka set you up on that one, it sounds. Sort of, yeah. I don't think he knew I was going to do that. But, you know, I, I did not get all the information on that. He sat there comfortably in the concert hall. <laughs> I just decided to start working on it and then... I kind of decided this before the pandemic hit, actually. I was just like looking into it, thinking I would like to do that and sing at the same time. I would like to go and conduct somewhere and then go and sing somewhere and maybe do the both at the same time. I'm not giving up my singing career, but I would love to do both. And because I love what I do. I love traveling. I love the music. I love making music. Uh, um, So it just seemed like a natural thing to go to. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's been such an honor and privilege to speak with you today. I'm looking forward uh, to collaborating with you in the future and hearing about your amazing vocal and conducting adventures. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it too. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony. And thanks to Michelle DeYoung for sharing her amazing musical gifts and insights. Thank you to all the incredible performers and labels that made this episode possible. All vocal performances you heard feature Michelle DeYoung. Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 2, The Resurrection, was performed by the Vienna Philharmonic, conducted by Pierre Boulez on Deutsche Grammophon. Essa Pekka-Salonen led the Philharmonia Orchestra in Bella Bartok's Duke Bluebeard's Castle on Sigmund Records. Der Abschied from Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde was played by the Minnesota Orchestra, conducted by A.G. Uwe on Reference Recordings. You can experience Michelle's work and upcoming concerts online at michelledeyoung.com. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to support the show. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music.